Hello and welcome to the next episode. For a while there on this podcast, I started to feel like I needed to be a bit more professional, I needed to be a bit more together. However, the beauty of becoming a little bit more comfortable is I've become a bit more outward with my true personality, who is a bit of a clown, to be honest, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to do a podcast on ADHD from a regular mum point of view. Because I felt like there's so many expert podcasts out there who are awesome. I don't want to compete with those people. They are there and they are killing it. But what I wanted to do and what I found when I got my diagnosis and I immediately went searching for information was it just that wasn't that relatable that would bring in a story and I'd be like riveted, like seeing myself in it and having more questions. But there wasn't enough stories around and there wasn't enough Australian podcasts around. For me, I wanted to hear about typical Australian women and I was desperate to meet someone or talk to my friends about it. And when I became really outward about who I am, how I was feeling, I felt more of a level of acceptance that I'd had before. And maybe it was a relief too, you know, to not have to have it all together and to have people that understood and we could have a bit of a laugh about it. So for me, I really wanted to bring in who I am and I want to really acknowledge right now that this episode on medication is from a personal perspective. Clearly, you need to see a psychiatrist. Clearly, you need to visit a GP. The only reason I'm doing this episode is because I really want to acknowledge that there's a lack of resources around for people. Even if you're lucky to have the $1,000 that you need, you might not have that resource available in your local area. You may not be able to get in for a year. A lot of people are battling to get into any care at all. I want to talk about my personal experience today that you might resonate with, you might not. Regardless whether you resonate or not, it's always best to talk to your doctor. However, I was answering a lot of inboxes with the same questions and I felt this is a great opportunity to put it out there. So in the Facebook groups, what I see over and over again is women particularly asking a lot of questions around medication dosages, how it's working, what effects to find, what to ask for, because people are obviously nervous. They've been waiting a long time for an appointment. They finally got their diagnosis. They're ready to go and they don't know what's going to happen. And one of the ways that we combat anxiety is to look for more information. So I'm hoping to give some more information today and hope that it helps somebody. If you haven't listened to the podcast on how to get a diagnosis, I recommend highly that you do that first. If you've listened to that and you're like, okay, cool, I've got my diagnosis, what do I do now? Then this is a good podcast for you. My personal opinion, I think there's two groups of people that are looking for a diagnosis. I think number one, you could be in the group who are not 100% sure that you have ADHD. You're looking for information, you're finding similarities, you're just not sure. Is it ADHD? Is it ASD? Is it depression, anxiety? I don't know. I'm confused. I don't understand what's happening and I need more information. You've got lots of questions. You might have a little bit of a family history. You can see yourself in some parts, but not in others. And you're questioning, you're questioning. And you would like to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. You don't know which one. Two, is I know that I have this. My family has it. I've never read anything that makes more sense to me. 
I know that I have ADHD. I can feel it in my soul and it makes sense every step of my life. And I know that I would like to get some help right now and I'm impatient to get it. Maybe you have a verbal diagnosis from a registered psych already and you're pretty confident that you've got it, but you'd like to try medication. So there's really two routes. You're either sure or you're not sure. There's really a couple of paths forward at this point. Obviously, the clinical psychologists all really believe and want everybody to go through a neuroaffirming psychologist assessment. Price-wise, they're around $1,500 to $3,000. They can be done in person or online. They can be done in anywhere between three, five more sessions. It's obviously very reliant on the psychologist and what they believe works. Now, by the way, I'm friends with a few clinical psychs that do this work. Tell you, they are pretty cool people. I do recommend that highly. However, you don't need a referral because you don't get a Medicare rebate on this one. So for a psychologist assessment, the $1,500 to $3,000, I'm not sure you'd have to give your private health a call as to whether they would cover some. I know that they don't for Medicare. Benefits, my point of view, is that you get a full understanding of who you are. I actually haven't done one of these assessments because I was diagnosed by a registered psych in therapy for burnout that I was already kind of in. I haven't done one of these, but I messaged just into Thomas, who I highly recommend recently, and I was like, I still think I want to do one. Obviously, price is always a factor in there, but for me, I wanted to really run through my life, how it worked, why I am the way I am, the challenges, the ups and downs, the roller coasters. And be more aware. So for example, sensory processing disorder, I know that I have that now. It's made a massive difference with my kids, with my husband to have an understanding of that. My husband and I have a great relationship. So for example, one of the, the things that he would say to me is you're not a very affectionate person. And you know, we all know men what they're really getting at there, but also he means like just genuinely, like he wants to have a bit of a hug, touch. It's not always about sex. It can be about just feeling affectionate. For me, especially having children, before having children, I feel like I was a bit more affectionate. My husband probably begged to differ on that. But afterwards, really having kids on top of me, crying, sensory overload, which I didn't know was sensory overload. So we had three kids. I was like seven years deep into parenting when I figured out I had this. It solves a lot of questions around my middle son who cried for six hours a day every day for like three years. So obviously a bit of mending happening there. Even when he cries now, I just have this like get away from me vibe. Anyway, I digress from what we're talking about. So I need to get back onto that. But basically when my husband goes out to touch me, particularly if I'm not medicated and my mind is flying, and we'll get to that later, but anyone on this podcast knows what it's like when your mind flows, like it's flying, it's a hundred miles an hour. I am not very present a lot of the time because my mind is working so quickly. And then if my husband comes to touch me in the middle of that, I'm like, get off me because I've got so much going on. From him looking at me, he's thinking, oh, she might be up for a hug here. And I'm like, not up for a hug because my mind is flying. So having a neuroaffirming psychologist assessment could be really helpful to explain yourself to others, become more aware know who you are. I think that's awesome. I love that. However, we need to be mindful. Not everyone has between $1,500 to $3,000. Not everybody has three to five sessions in them. 
And not everybody necessarily wants to have an understanding either. Sometimes there can be a lot of grief in that. Sometimes people don't want to unpack it. They just want to move forward. And that's cool too. So with the neuroaffirming psychologist assessment, if you are somebody who's already on the NDIS, let's say you've been diagnosed with bipolar, borderline, schizophrenia, let's say you've got really severe depression, really severe anxiety, and you've managed to get on the NDIS, a neuroaffirming psychologist assessment, I don't know if it'll be covered by the NDIS, you need to ring them, but I do know that report can be used by them. So if you're on the NDIS... ADHD isn't a primary diagnosis. You can't just have ADHD and get on the NDIS, but you can have it added. So if you had ADHD added, you would be able to do therapy types for ADHD. You could go get an ADHD coach. You could get some sensory overload, like maybe get some earplugs, something like that. So with the neuroaffirming psychologist assessment, you also need to be aware that they cannot prescribe medication. So Let's just be really aware here. They've got their place. God, I love them. They do the NDIS and they also can do therapy with you afterwards. It's a good idea to ask about that. If you find things that you want to work on, are they able to do that with you? Personally, I love myself a person with lived experience of being neuroaffirming. So that means that they are somebody who has ADHD or ASD or another neurodiverse disorder condition, whatever you want to call it, but they can't do meds. So just be aware that if that's the end of it and you get to the end um, and you ask them for medication, they're just not going to be able to do that. If you do go and get a neuroaffirming assessment, it might be a good idea to also contact a psychiatrist and just get on a wait list. Um, That can be a really positive thing to do as well. So number two, psychiatrist. If you are somebody like me who is hardcore impatient, and you just want to get there and you just want to find something, anything at this point to help you. Psychiatrist is definitely a bit of a quicker way forward. And you've been to see a registered psych um, or you're just convinced that you've got ADHD and you know that's what you have. Maybe you've heard great things about ADHD medication and you're like, oh my God, I've waited like 40 years for this. Just give me the meds. I want to try them. Often a lot of people feel like that because they're quite short acting. So, you know, that only last three or four hours. Someone recently said to me in one of the interviews, it's like an ADHD Panadol. They only last for three or four hours. So, you know, you don't have to commit to taking them for three months and then try and figure out if you've got an effect or not and have a withdrawal. It's a pretty low bar for entry. You just literally can take it and see how it feels for you, which I love. It's about the only easy part about having ADHD, the medication, when you can get it. Let's just get back to that. But it's not a big commitment of time and it's not like a big lifestyle change. Um, and also you don't put any weight on a lot of the time with antidepressants. You put a lot of weight on um, with stimulants. A lot of people do find that they've got an appetite suppressant, um, which everybody needs to eat healthily. Don't get me wrong, but I do find that I don't eat from my kitchen lunch boxes as I'm making them, but I do take medication. Everyone will probably, you know, you're like, oh, one pretzel for the lunchbox, one for me. So um, be prepared with a psychiatrist that they might not read the psychologist report. So I know a few people have said that to me, that they spent a lot of money on this psychology report. They felt that they had a really good um, expression of their ADHD in that report and they walked in, the psychiatrist put it to the side and then proceeded to just do their own diagnosis. That could be really confronting if you were kind of relying on the report to speak for you. 
some people do find a lack of confidence with ADHD, which is probably a self-esteem thing. So um, just be prepared that you might need to bullet point it for them, maybe write a few things down um, you know, in your own words, because perhaps from their point of view, I'm not a psychiatrist, I wouldn't know, they need to do their own assessment. Perhaps they don't want to go off a psychologist report. Perhaps that's part of it for them, they're handing out the medication. You are going to need a referral for a psychiatrist um, and often they won't even triage you without one. So that can be difficult because you go to your GP and you're like, hey, can I have a referral for a psychiatrist? And they give you one that's booked out for two years or not taking new clients. A lot of people don't want to take an ADHD client too because there's a fair bit of maintenance. You know, you need to follow up with dosages and medication. So for some psychiatrists, they're like, no, no, I don't really want those clients. So I always do it the other way with a GP. I always call around, look in the mums groups or the Facebook groups, ask some questions, find a psychiatrist that suits you and then get a referral afterwards. Otherwise, you're going to be ringing up your GP 50 times, probably literally 50 times, changing the referral. I think that it's really important to mention here that there's two types of psychiatrists. So there's a telepsychiatrist and there's an in-person psychiatrist. Both of them are completely different, in my opinion. Let's just recap for a moment. So you're either one of two people. You either want to do a proper diagnosis in person. You're willing to wait list for quality and drive a distance. That means that you are looking for somebody, an in-person psychiatrist. You are one of those people, my friend. Um, get ready to wait because that's where you are. The other type of person, as we pointed out earlier, is I know I have a diagnosis. Um, I've been verbally diagnosed by someone else or I'm very confident, I'm feeling good about it and I can advocate for myself. There's two people. The first group of people that want to be in person, you really need to ring around a lot, be prepared to drive um, and make sure you do your homework about who that person is. I hear a lot of stories People wait six, 12 months, they drive, they drive a long way, they get there and this person is like, oh no, only hyperactive eight-year-old boys get ADHD and they, they just misdiagnose them with something else and they leave and they're completely let down. There's nothing wrong with not being diagnosed with ADHD. Not everybody has it. But if you don't get the diagnosis, then we just want to make sure that the person that we get really has a chat to us, really understands where you're at and they are very aggressive with their approach and their education around ADHD because you can't make that assumption just because they're a psychiatrist. So if you are going to go down that in-person route, I would be very careful who you choose. Really look at that. Although I've had some guests on our show who swear by their private psychiatrist who said they're an absolute legend. And I wish I had one of those, to be honest. Unfortunately, I don't. The in-person ones, you do need to be aware if you are doing medication you know, they might say, we review you in eight weeks, you go out to reception, they don't have an appointment for six months. It is slower. I think we need to acknowledge a private in-person psychiatrist is a bit slower. But if you get someone that's high quality, maybe that doesn't matter for you. I had a look online, I've done a bit of research, obviously everything changes, um, you know, per clinic. But what I have had a look at is for psychiatrists in person, if you're going to do an ADHD assessment, it's $980 over two sessions. This is a couple of clinics I looked up in Brisbane. Different areas might be slightly different. It is very expensive. The total Medicare rebate you get back for both sessions is 316 Now, I'm not masking my lack of calculation ability anymore, so I'm just going to let you know I just got a calculator out because I can't do that in my head. 
for those of you who are driving or washing up dishes and are like, what does that mean? I don't know. Can you just tell me what that is? That's $663 out of pocket for a ADHD assessment just in Brisbane in an in-person clinic. Now, if you were to do a follow-up with that same clinic, so let's say you get your assessment, they say, yep, you've got ADHD, come back for a follow-up to discuss medication because they probably won't do that first one. You know, you've got to wait, which sucks, but okay. So let's say you do that. Your follow-ups are going to be 15 minutes um, is $180 with a Medicare rebate of $39.55. So that's about $140 for 15 minutes. Now be aware, I haven't seen any psychiatrists actually do 15-minute appointments. Generally, they do 30 minutes. And then don't you love this? What they actually do is you have to sit there while they do their paperwork and you have to wait. So you talk to them for five minutes and they spend 25 minutes doing paperwork. Um, And for that privilege, that's a 30-minute follow-up is $280 total. Medicare rebate, if you're eligible, is $78, which I've just done the calculator, is $201.15 per follow-up. That's for in-person, just a Brisbane appointment. Um, Obviously, getting the appointment is difficult and the follow-ups can be difficult to get in. Um, However, if you find someone quality, that might be where you're at. If you're someone who's not sure, that could be a good way to go about it. If you're not sure, you also could go to the neuroaffirming psychologist, get sure, and then you can go to any psychiatrist you like. Um, but if you are unsure, you probably want to pick a quite a good one in person um, and then they will be able to do the medication as well. The problem with the neuroaffirming assessments is that if you are financially not in a great position, let's say you get a deal on the neuroaffirming assessment, that's two and a half grand then you do your psychiatrist appointment for the assessment. You're up to three and a half grand. You get a rebate. You get a couple of follow-ups to get your meds. I'm not very good at maths, but you're looking at quite a bit of money. In my experience, we'll get to this. Not always the medication that works for you is the first one offered. Um, So then you've kind of got to go back a fair few times, which is very costly. I've had a couple of people on here that have chosen to go unmedicated because they haven't been able to get the dosage right and they just can't afford to go back all those times to get a slightly different script and play around with it. Um, and so they choose to go on medicated. That's obviously up to them. I'm just giving information on, on the process. Your other um, option for psychiatrists is a telehealth psychiatrist. There's a pretty big difference between a telehealth psychiatrist and an in-person one. First one would be the speed. I see a telehealth psychiatrist. I won't say who they are because I probably wouldn't really recommend them. You can get in, you know, three weeks, two weeks. It's not a very friendly process. They send you an email with all of these things you've got to do, which is really hard to navigate and confuses you. You have to do all those questionnaires and then send them back in one email and pay like so much money up front to see this person that you're probably not even sure is very good. One good thing about the telehealth psychiatrist is if you know that you have it and you're pretty textbook, they will kind of mark you off pretty quick. The assessment tools are pretty good in some ways because you get to write a lot of it down, you email it back. They say they've read it, whether they have or not, I don't know. Um, They rang my husband for five minutes, which was pretty funny because they're like, oh, can you um, 
make sure you've got someone around a family member. Hey, like we want to talk to someone. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. So I told my husband the completely wrong time. So then I said to the psychiatrist, oh, I've told him the wrong time. He's not here. And then he had to call him on his mobile. And I think it was very ADHD of me that I got the whole thing completely confused, which was funny. So I actually was on speaker, which I also thought was weird. So he rang my husband on Zoom then put him on speaker so I could hear what my husband was saying about me, which was pretty funny. He's like, oh, what symptoms do you think she has? And then I think he asked something else, which was like really non-event question. And my husband was like, oh, I don't think she's very good at multitasking and she like walks off and leaves the rice cooking a fair bit. And then he said, oh, no, you have ADHD, diagnose me in like under 10 minutes. So that was good for me because I was pretty sure I had it. I was pretty comfortable. We had a good family history and I was pretty keen just to get to try the medication. Um, total fees for the telehealth. It is a bit cheaper in some ways and then not in others. So when I went, it was $450 for an assessment. It's literally gone up to 600 because I just checked it before and I was like, I didn't pay $600 surely for that. And I just had a look and the email that I was given, it was 450. I just looked it up before and I was like, didn't I pay like $325 the other day for a um, follow-up? And I did. And I noticed it had gone up from the $250 it used to be. So, I mean, it's gone up like six months. It's out there to be honest, the amount of money, but I suppose what I really wanted to highlight with this medication chat is that it can be really expensive to keep going back. One of the problems that I found I was very frustrated with, and I don't know if this is all psychiatrists or just the one that I see, um, he said, oh, we're going to give you some Ritalin. And I said, oh, I'm pretty keen actually to try the Concerta, which is the long acting. So there's two different types of medications. The first is de dexamphetamine. And then the second is Ritalin. So they're both the short-acting versions. Um, a lot of people call dexamphetamine dex. So there's Ritalin. So then they've got long-acting versions as well. So for me, I had heard really good things about Concerta, which is the long-acting Ritalin. So you take one tablet in the morning and that's pretty much it for the day. And he said, no, no, I can only prescribe Ritalin. Um, you are not able to have Concerta in the first script you it's legally you have to try Ritalin so I took the Ritalin and I felt like I became aggressive there was a very strong up if you want to feel good oh my god the Ritalin was up really fast um and I was down really hard too so I felt the dosage was just so high like I think he did five 10 milligram tablets a day I could only take half at a time because the come down was so bad. And then I was trying to like not take as much of it and I was still getting affected by the come downs. I felt really irritated. Um, but I also didn't think I had a choice. So I just kept on with it. And then eventually I was like, oh, I think I want to try the long acting. So I'd already had an assessment and I'd already had a 30 minute consult to get this Ritalin. So then I go back and say, can I try a Concerta? And he's like, oh, okay. You can try Concerta and we had a like three minute chat about that. And I said to him, like, what are the other options if I don't like the Concerta? I said, I'm reading a lot about um, 
five ants and online and I really like to try that. He's like, oh no, you have to try Concerta next. Um, and I was like, okay, but if it doesn't work, what do I then do? He's like, oh, you come back. And I'm thinking, okay, it's another $300, but okay. So we, I get on the Concerta and I take it for one day and it was like the walking dead was coming for me and the my life was ending and we were all going to die soon. It was such severe anxiety. I took it a second day just trying to figure out like what's wrong with me? Am I okay? Is this the meds? What is this? It was second day. I was done. I was like, this is awful. Anyways, then I was really frustrated because I'd already had a $300 appointment and 48 hours later, I was like, that didn't work. So I waited a few more weeks. I don't know why I went back to the Ritalin and I actually did that RSD story about it because in hindsight, I think that was a Ritalin issue to be honest. Um, cause I got so upset so quickly and I ended up yelling back. If you haven't heard my RSD story, online you can go back and check it out but I wasn't really feeling like myself and I thought well at this point I just need to try everything like um, that's what I want to do so I had a chat with my husband he's like holy moly this is getting expensive and I went back and so I said to him look the concerta gave me really bad anxiety I'm really not convinced Ritalin's the right one for me can I try the other one I really want to try the Vyvanse which is the long-acting dexamphetamine and he's like, no, no, short acting is the best for you. Um, I know people and they like to control how they feel. And he just, he loves the short acting, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I just want to try Vyvanse. Like I've said that from the beginning. Anyway, so now he's given me this dexamphetamine short acting. And he said, oh no, you have to take it like four times a day or five times a day. I have a bit of a problem with the dose that they give you, like, Honestly, he gave me this dose and I don't know if it was that I read it wrong. Actually, I've got the bottle in front of me, so I'm going to read what it says. Oh, my God, it's not even my fault. It says on here, Jane McFadden, take five tablets daily. So I look at this and go, oh, five tablets daily. Um, I think he might have given me like some kind of management plan, which I don't think I haven't got his email or maybe I, I don't know, ADHD, right? I don't know. I got the bottle and I like five tablets. So I took five tablets the first day and let me tell you, I was flying. My teeth were grinding. I ended up going back to the pharmacy and I was like, oh, I need a mouth guard because I'm getting a headache from all the teeth grinding. And they were like, oh my God, how much have you taken? They said that is not the right dose for someone who's just starting out. Anyway, I was actually supposed to be taking two. Whose fault that is? I don't know if it was him or mine, but I suppose if you've got someone with ADHD, maybe don't put five tablets daily on top of it you might want to say see management I don't know but so that first day was a bit of a ride let me tell you but I do find the dexamphetamine a lot more chilled I actually played uno which with my kids the other day which I haven't done for years I'm definitely nicer kinder more compassionate a bit more loving on the dexamphetamine for sure I don't find it such a ride what I do have a problem with is that I still would like to try the Vivance because pretty much having this tiny white bottle with me all the time is really difficult. I do kind of feel it when it starts to come off and I do feel a little weird or not agitated like with the Ritalin though, but I do really feel it. And of course, I never have the right bottle with me and I actually worry that I'm going to lose the bottle and then I'm going to have to try and go back to the psychiatrist and convince them that I've lost the controlled substance. But 
it really feels like I'm going to lose this little white bottle because I'm constantly having to carry it around. I suppose I could put some pills in a glad wrap bag or something and put it in my wallet, but I don't even carry my wallet around anymore. It's just keeping up with the dosage is a real pain. I just emailed him before to ask if I could go back. How many appointments is that now? Like it's so much money. Um, and literally you have to sit there for 30 minutes while he does his paperwork and you talk to him for such a short period. Um, I don't even find that he really problem solves what's happening for me very often either. Like I'm trying to figure out the dose myself it feels like. I don't know if I need to be more open with him or I don't know. I just I don't find him mind-blowing. I really don't. But I do know I can get in with him in under a week, which might really say something about him. But um, I suppose for me I have – I feel like I have the education and knowledge and body awareness to try to monitor myself and find my own dose. I would love to have someone I could talk with a little bit more about that's a bit more experienced, which is why I'm doing this podcast because some people don't have psychiatrists they can get in with or talk to. Um, I ended up problem solving because I was initially taking half because I was worried about the come down um, and I ended up taking the full one. And I do find the effects to be better. So when we talk about effects being better, I really try and be specific, not just I feel better. The effects for me would be having a clearer mind. So I'm less um, distracted. I'm, I'm more able to finish tasks. Like, for example, today I've had my medication. I'm actually able to do this as opposed to plan it, think about it. I open 60 tabs and when I say 60, I'm not joking. I'm saying 60 tabs. I open 60 tabs. I have two phones, one work phone, one personal phone. I start texting on both. I start things. I stop things. I think about things. I call people. And I feel like I've achieved a lot sometimes, but I often haven't. Do find on the decks I am able to do jobs that I don't really like. So, for example, I've got to organize a few family things. My pet hate is doing events or having anybody at my house um, might be an ADHD thing. I'm not really sure, but um, I do find that to be quite triggering for me. I don't enjoy it. So um, I actually find that I can organize family events that we need to do a bit more easily, do jobs that I don't like. Um, so I do find that is quite good. There is a little bit of a come down in the afternoon. I do start to feel quite tired. Apparently then you have to pop up another one. Sleep-wise, I don't think it affects me if I take it much after 2.30, 3 o'clock. Once I start moving towards 3.30, I do it, – it does keep me awake. I'm one of those people I like to go to the gym in the morning, so I get up around quarter past five. So, you know, if I'm going to sleep after 10 o'clock at night, it's pretty late. So sleep-wise, I think it's okay, but you just got to time it. Um, I read on Facebook the other day someone said, oh, you just got to time it like – Take it as late as you can so you're pretty fresh for the bedtime, but um, don't take it so late that your sleep's affected. So see what that is for you. Some people obviously are going to be a bit different. Um, I think that's just a balancing act. So there's pretty much two stimulants um, that there's prescribed. For example, if you took the Concerta and you had really bad anxiety, sometimes they might prescribe you an anti-anxiety as well. So there is mixes. There are different options that you can do, but I'm just talking about this particular one. Um, if you look at the research on how a stimulant reduces hyperactivity, 
stimulants can actually turn down the chatter in the head and it also ramps up and switches our ability to be able to multitask. It makes it easier for us to turn back from one attention to the other, which can be really difficult for us, especially if something's not interesting. It can help us be able to do that. It also, as well, if you think about um, the just absolute drain, which is ADHD, so the level of exhaustion and just fatigue that you would feel in your brain, I feel like that a lot of that is to do with how difficult it is for us to pay attention to all of the thoughts in our brains, the speed of which we're working at all the time and the how difficult it is to change tasks. So, for example, if your thoughts just like running, running, running about your kids and an issue that you've got and all these thoughts about whether you should email, what you should do, should you book them in for counselling, um, all of the thoughts, and then let's say you're trying to work, the amount of time and energy and stress to divert your attention away from where you feel it needs to go to what you should be doing, that can be really taxing. Um, the professional opinion is that medication makes that easier to do. I also notice that walking around my house, if I'm unmedicated, I often get overwhelmed. I think about all the things I've got to do. I try to pick up things. I move things around. I think about different systems. I try and do some washing, but I don't really finish it. Then I do the dishwasher. If I'm medicated, I feel that I just go, I'm going to clean out the fridge. It really needs it done. And I just do it. That is a big difference. Um, it's hard to put that into words. Sometimes if people go, what is the big difference? Do you get more done? It's like, you might not feel that you get more done, but you might notice you get more outcomes. Might be more of it. Um, I know someone the other day, they were telling me they've been trying to do their passport application for six months and they took medication for the first time and they just sat there and it was so easy and they just did it. And they were like, what was that? Um, it does feel a little bit more like flow state. Um, and I don't worry as much. I do find my anxiety is decreased. Um, and I have difficulty not being present. So I have difficulty worrying about things that don't matter. Whereas that's obviously something that comes easy to most of us. So I definitely feel there's less anxiety and I, I always said I wasn't someone who got anxiety. I've really started to come to peace. When I interview people who have anxiety, I'm like, wow, I actually feel like that most of the time. So I definitely don't feel as anxious um, when I'm taking medication. So basically overall, um, you know, from the research that I've done, it shows that your brain starts to work easier. It understands what to focus on, what not to it directs you, it makes things easier where you're not, if you think about driving around your car, unmedicated could feel like your manual. You're literally going, you're really having to push, push from first to second to third to fourth up to fifth to really get moving. Whereas um, if I'm medicated, I do find that I feel like I'm a bit on like automatic. It, everything seems easier um, and it's not as hard to move from one thing to another, definitely Sometimes when I feel like my husband goes to touch me or one of the kids talks to me, it's difficult for me to concentrate because I feel like I have like heavy metal music going on in my brain. Um, and obviously it's not very nice for them because they probably don't feel that I'm present, which I'm not because I've got so much going on. Definitely feel more present when I'm taking medication, that's for sure. Um, I've also worked in the canteen at school on medication and done it without very different experience being able to remember with your working memory very different experience you know like someone says can I have three sprites and a hot dog 
and I can, it's not never quick, but I can add that up in my mind, walk over to the fridge and 90% of the time I'll get it right. Whereas probably the anxiety of someone ordering and me having to remember and then calculate, like I don't even really hear what they're saying at that point. Um, that's probably playing in there a little bit, a lot as well. Okay, so here's a question that everybody wants to know the answer to, I reckon, is why would stimulants improve the symptoms of ADHD? There's all these myths around it. I'm not a neuropsychologist. Let's not go into how the brain works. If you want to understand more about it, you can always look it up. Look up dopamine in the brain and neurotransmitters and ADHD. Read your heart out. I'm just going to make it really simple. And remember, I'm not an expert. Um, I'm We've got dopamine in the brain. Now, a lot of people with ADHD are quite addicted to the phone because you get a dopamine hit. We know with ADHD that you have low levels of the neurotransmitter dopamine. This is a chemical that's released into the nerve cells into the brain. Because of this lack of dopamine, people with ADHD are chemically wired to seek more. So we've got a heap of people who are just wired to seek dopamine. So your question might be, why would we want to seek dopamine? What are you talking about? Okay, so dopamine is linked to the reward system. It can make it really difficult to get a reward from ordinary activities. So, for example, if you have a star chart for your kid to get ready for school, probably everybody, hands up if your kid just like never uses it and it just like it's the most wasteful $100 you've ever spent, three reward charts that no one uses. Yep, that's me too. So ticking off a list might not be enough of a reward for a dopamine-seeking brain. It can be difficult for us to do the same activities that don't interest us because we don't have the same reward center in the brain. Low dopamine can feel tired, moody, unmotivated. It's linked to a bit of procrastination. Um, and you're looking for dopamine to help you feel good. That's what you're looking for. So you can be sitting in a low, tired mood, unmotivated. This is literally my children. And then they'll seek out dopamine hits to bring them up. And this is a biological thing. This isn't them being naughty. This is just who they are as people. And having that understanding really helps you parent them a little bit better, in my opinion. So at times it can feel like it's never enough. It can feel like your ADHD brain is craving. It's craving dopamine. It's craving that hit. And how do we get dopamine? It can be through like video games, um, sex, substances, shopping. Um, some kids with ADHD um, try to antagonize others to see what happens. It can be they're just craving stimulation because they don't have enough dopamine. So for us to be functioning well, we need our brain to be alert, receptive, and ready to attend and to learn. Generally, like a non-ADHD brain, they can shift from activity to activity, whether it's exciting or a little bit slower paced, they're able to continue, they can self-regulate and they have a, a decent amount of control over their behavior. ADHD brains, not so much. Um, we are motivated mainly by stimulation rather than what others think are important. It really depends on whether it's internal or external. Um, if we want to do something, obviously we're more motivated if it's an external demand. We don't make conscious choices to ignore the external demands. However, it can appear like that to others. But for us, if we're internally motivated, it's more meaningful to us. And that's when dopamine becomes more readily available, which means it's a quicker, sometimes we're looking for the, the quick hit of dopamine rather than 
um, you know, consequences of time or getting into trouble are often disregarded in the seek of a short hit of dopamine or a quick pleasure. So the aspects of the ADHD brain can make it really difficult to get reward from ordinary activities. Because we have dopamine deficient brains, we get a surge of motivation if it's a highly stimulating behavior and we get a high hit of dopamine quickly. But but the aftermath of that surge and reward can be a drop in motivation. We can see here that um, behaviors or we can see here that tasks that we need to do that aren't very compelling, that we aren't interested in doing, we need a much bigger reward to get us there. Or we need a last minute deadline. For example, my husband's passport application. Um, I had a friend asked us to go to Fiji with them and we were looking like we were going to book. Next thing you know, he had his passport application ready and he'd printed it and I was completely blown away. But when we realized the hotel was sold out and we couldn't go, he never went to the Australia Post to actually put it in. And I know he won't do that until the trip's booked, which really frustrates me if I'm honest, but I know that's how he works. So there's particular activities that can even amplify dopamine production. So driving fast, motorbike riding, water skiing, food, exercise, competition, ski jumps, skydiving really spike up that dopamine and it can, you know, involve careers like emergency doctors, firefighters, um, paramedics, defense force. There's lots of different ways we can look for dopamine. So we know that nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, um, gambling, risk-taking can increase dopamine even more. We know that there is a link between addiction and ADHD, which we'll do another episode, but we know that that is there um, and that you can go back looking for that hit over and over and over again. So I don't want to get too much into dopamine, but I do want to give a bit of a background as to how it worked. The reason that I mention this is because this is why stimulant med- medication works. So we have this whole question, okay, so I don't want to give my kid a stimulant because they're already hyperactive. If you have stimulants in your system, we know that it creates more dopamine and then your brain is operating more like a neurotypical brain where it's not seeking dopamine. You can then look at your impulse control, like let's say online shopping or things that you don't like to tell people about that you do, that stuff should be decreasing. For me, I know that does. I'm much more controlled. I'm much more focused. I know what to focus on and there's less anxiety and overwhelm because my brain is working better. So if that's a question for you around dopamine and how it works, you don't need to feel an automatic fix necessarily, but you might start to realize what a neurotypical world looks like when you're taking medication, if it's the right medication for you. So you might notice small shifts. It might not feel the way that you think it's going to feel, and you should always check in with your medical practitioner, but you might find that you stick to tasks more. I had a friend, she took um, some medication for the first time. She said it didn't work. And I said, really, what were you doing? And she goes, I weeded my garden. I said, really? She goes, yeah, I usually can't do that. And I said, how long did you weed for? She weeded for four hours and she reckoned the medication didn't work. And I said to her, but it was that a task that you wanted to do? She was like, yeah, I really wanted to do that. I just could never be motivated. And um, I was like, well, there you go. 
That's how it works. So by giving your brain what it needs, it doesn't need to seek it out and we don't become as distracted. Again, this is just a, a ADHD mum's take on it. Love you to bring in a medical practitioner and perhaps they could shed a little bit more advice. If there's a professional out there that you'd love to recommend to bring on the show, God, that would be amazing as well. But for now, um, that is my take on medication. Go back to your medical practitioner. And look, I see people online all the time saying the psychiatrist is giving them a prescription and they're just trying to make it work. And the great thing about this medication is it's only in your system for four hours. So what you can do is take it at different times, try it, keep a log, keep something on your phone of how you're feeling and what, what you did that day and how you felt um, and what that little that come down can sometimes be quite rough too, how that felt and play around with it. For me, uh, I was probably taking too less and then I took a bit more and I felt a bit better. You know, I've come to terms with the fact that I was initially taking it just for work and I didn't, I felt like I shouldn't be taking it all day. So I was only taking in the morning, getting a rough come down in the afternoon and then having my kids. For me, that was completely stupid. Um, there's a lot of research in that um, slow release as well. I think I said earlier, I am going to try that five ants, that long release, the long release dexamphetamine. I'm really excited to try that. I might do another podcast on how that feels. I do enjoy the dex, but I do think it is a bit of a roller coaster. Like I'm currently about to jump in the car and go somewhere and I'm like, where's the bottle? I don't know where it is. I've got to take it with me. When will I be home? Oh, I haven't eaten. I, I think I just prefer the one tablet, but each to their own. It's all a journey. I, I hope this was helpful for you. Have a great day. Thanks, guys.